Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. If you've been listening to the past few episodes, you know that we've been emphasizing a theme of leadership and growth, but that is not today's subject matter. We're getting back to our strength and conditioning roots with none other than University of Missouri's Dr. Brian Mann. Brian talks with the crew about the science of dynamic movement as it pertains to weight room results versus on-field performance. And this debate obviously is not a new one, but what Dr. Mann brings to the table is his own published research. He also discusses in depth about how to determine injury predisposition and how to address it specifically. Another nugget that I found interesting was what he discovered when testing athletes' power potential during the stressful midterm season. Hey, let's train our brains together. This is episode 249. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? It is time for the premier podcast in strength, strength and, and conditioning. conditioning. Ing, ing, ing. Ing, 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 ing. Uh, it's getting worse. We, no, it's getting great. People, like, it is... I forget. It's like a trademark. It's like uh, it's like a rubber stamp for whether or not it was a good. You know, I mean, we don't really need to like rubber stamp them at this point, but I just well, think it's. Well, I mean, a, gag. About a month ago, as we were featured on Men's Health as one of the premier podcasts in strength and conditioning, a lot of our followers. Well, weren't followers we? Didn't the, we are the premier podcast in strength well, and conditioning. No, it was a a list of five premier podcasts. <laughs> we were the strength and conditioning, conditioning premier ah, podcast. Thank you. Uh, but our listeners did make note on social, especially on Vero. <laughs> <laughs> the new Facebook. <laughs> I thought that was um, a new Instagram. I don't fucking know, bro. Uh, but that they missed the ing ing, the hyphen ing 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 of ing 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 ing. Well, you know, Harry had me squat on a John Walborn on Vero. Yeah, oh, I'm mate. On. Oh, mate, you got to sign up and squat on this before somebody else what? does. I'm like, I don't think people are racing to sign up for John Walborn. There's no usernames. It's just your email. Yeah, and your so name. You're fine. Yeah. So here's the uh, thing. Well, which email? There's, but John, here's what we got to tell these people that are listening. Our two, three listeners. There's not just a new Instagram. There's a new Power Athlete shirt out. Ooh. And it is the first, the inaugural pocket shirt. I don't know if our listeners are anything like me, but sometimes I find myself in classy situations where Eat the Week might not be an appropriate shirt to wear. So if I need like a semi-classic or like a semi-classy shirt, semi-casual, semi-dress, I might use a front pocket tee. Well, well I mean, I've I'll... been rocking a PFG. I got like eight pockets on my front. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just thought you guys wanted a place to hide those little mini Snicker bars that you guys, you know, stock up on around Halloween. Isn't that what they're really for? Just hiding candy in your pocket? Yeah, uh, mostly Smarties. But people, check it out. We've got free shipping on your next order in celebration of the inaugural pocket tee with coupon code. Wait for it. Wait for it. Pockets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the fad? The pockets are fad. Uh, yeah. I've, I've always said the, the internet's a fad, pockets are a fad, zippers are fad. Yeah. They're totally going to go out and we're going to figure this thing out. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're short on Power Athlete gear, head to shop.powerathletehq.com and grab yourself a fucking pocket tee to wear to a wedding. You know, I think oh, it's wedding no. attire. <laughs> Sport coat and a pocket tee, John. I think it's a winner. I mean, I don't know why anybody would uh, not want to wear that. What's, uh, what do you put in your pockets on dress coats? What uh, Smarties. <laughs> Snickers. <laughs> Snickers. Uh, Snickers and a handkerchief. Yes. But I, enough about us. I, I think they're called pocket squares. Pocket squares. Yeah. yeah. Get yourself a pocket square. Yeah. We have the tech we square, really, and then we got the pocket square. If we were dialed in apparel company, we would have an accessory pocket square for the pocket tee, which we don't. Shh. I mean, we do. Now, I've been known to fit a ice-cold, frosty 
Shiner Bach bottle in my front pocket. That's usually what I, I thought I that was before. where you kept your extra underwear. That too. Okay. My only pair of underwear, if I'm not wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> so enough about us people. Enough about pocket tees. Let's get to our guest. It's not just going to be penguin talk today with John and Luke. We're going to talk <laughs> penguin and penguin performance with... Mr. Brian Mann, who is a second-time Power Athlete Radio guest. He was previously on episode 213, so if you want to get that first half, you're going to have to scroll back a bit and pop it up. But, Brian, what's going on, man? Thanks for jumping on. Hey, thanks for having me again, guys. I guess I didn't completely uh, uh, crap the nest the first time, so you know, I appreciate you having me back. This time, my audio quality should be better. I got my nice, uh, my nice blue Yeti mic here. Ooh, so, yeah. That thing's legit. Yeah, man. Yeah, whenever I heard the audio quality on the last one, I'm like, I can't do this again. I've got to, I've got to fix this thing. Well, it was so. good. I mean, uh, we had so much street cred from just having you on. We're like, oh, and uh, we've had Brian Mann on the podcast, and then instantly, you know, it took us to the premier, premier podcast on strength condition. Uh, and, well, and we instantly, it probably name. took your listenership down by half. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it did, but that's because my parents went on vacation, so uh, oh, they didn't have access to the internet. <laughs> so you were, on, the, you were on vacation with them, so. Oh, that's right. Actually, yeah, that was yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, that's why the listenership was down. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know. What, what are you saying, text that I can't carry a uh, podcast? Or a beat, yeah. Uh, that's a probably... No, actually, no I'm ki- I kid, John. Hey, you guys I, are really... Uh, we got to start a band. Uh, that's a challenge. Uh, you know, uh, I've been teaching my daughters how to play the guitar, which is a really interesting exercise in patience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, if I can teach my daughters to play the guitar, I can totally probably get text to te- you know, play the guitar, too. I, mm-hmm. I can play, fine. I'm yeah. a tambourine guy. Yeah. Big percussionist. You're like, so does that mean you're going to be like, I got a fever, and there's only one prescription? Oh, start cowbell. Oh, I'm, more I'm cowbell. cowbell. Oh, dude, I could see you rocking the cowbell. hundred. That's all I so. Got. So does this mean at the wedding um, that you're out there rocking a cowbell? But the problem is we have two cowbells, and Tex doesn't have anybody to play cowbell with him. So, oh, ladies man. out there, please send in a request to Callie at Power Athlete HQ if you want to be Texas date at Luke's wedding. If you want to be the Premier, no, the the stick to Texas cowbell. What are you gonna <laughs> oh, we got to work on that one. All right, you know, I've also got two classes that I'm teaching. Three classes I'm teaching this semester, so I'll go ahead and I'll make sure to post this podcast in there. Oh, so thank we, you. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Tex, uh, you know, Brian's gonna, you know, he's having a, uh, you know, a newborn coming in, so we're gonna have to fly into Mizzou and uh, go in there and um, talk to people a little bit about what we do. Which um, I don't even know if you know what we do, but I somebody yeah, I does. I don't even know if those kids know what they do. The, I'll be the adjunct. All right. So I had the opportunity to connect with with uh, with Coach Mann at the NSCA Coaches Clinic in January. Uh, caught a couple of your presentations, and I'd love to, I guess, our listeners that missed our first episode, I'd love for you to kind of uh, talk about your mission here, pushing the field and using research and what it is that you are truly passionate about accomplishing, speaking and teaching and doing it all it is that you are doing for the industry? Well, you know, my passion really is, is that, uh, you know, pushing the field in any way that we can. And there are a lot of great researchers out there and there's a lot of great coaches and a lot of people doing great things. Now, the downside is, is if we don't have everybody at the same table, then we're not actually going to push the field forward. Everybody's just kind of spinning their wheels in their own directions. You know, you might get uh, some great papers about people doing uh, occluded bike work hypoxically within the endocrine response from that. Well, what does that win a game? No, nobody's going to be doing that. So let's make sure that we get 
everybody on the same page. And this is like the perfect time to talk about that because um, March 1st, which I'm sure this will come out after that, is the uh, deadline for uh, the abstracts for uh, research abstracts for the NSCA. And I'm helping out several coaches to be able to put, hey, here's what we're doing. Let's share our information. Let's help everybody out to uh, to be able to push the field and, and know what's going on. I mean, we can talk about, you know, oh, well, this is the, uh, let me, I guess I'll just get on the soapbox here. I really don't care whenever people stand up and get in front on a presentation to be like, this is the XYZ school way of doing things. Dude, tell me if it fucking works. You know, and don't you think, uh, Brian, don't you think people don't really know if it works? Because I was thinking they about don't. this uh, when I read any of the NACA stuff. And when you said, look, at a lot of these studies, they're kind of, uh, you know, in these controlled environments and they're really right. not looking at like a real world situation. Absolutely. Like uh, like, hey, we brought in these 22 untrained individuals and we had them do, uh, you know, leg or leg extensions for three weeks. And we had them do biceps curls. And then we found that their leg in- extension strength increased by 10 percent from just doing bicep curls. And you're like. Okay, so you're telling me that basically a novice athlete can do anything and get stronger? Like, you're not yeah. fucking telling me anything I don't know. And so I, I kind of like, uh, as I was going through them, uh, there was never anything where it was like, hey, at a Division One school, like, a, you know, you take like a, a you know, a major university uh, that doesn't necessarily get the best players. Like, you know, because you can't, you look at like schools like Alabama and these major Division One schools that, you know, basically have genetic freaks that the only reason they're not playing in the NFL is because they're not 22 years old. So you right. like look at like, you know, maybe other Tier 1, Division One schools that might not get the best athletes you put them in there and uh you know how come people don't go in and do the studies with like actually the athletes and then quantitate and say hey we saw this happen and it translated to this individual's performance or this team's performance you know and that's that's what i'm really trying to push and that whenever as the uh, chair of the college uh, special interest group i met with a lot of the professors and things like that i'm like come on guys let's get the same table because the coaches, if they're doing pre-test and post-test, there's no reason why we can't be putting out that information. Uh, you know, I use that APRE paper from, God, it's forever ago now. I think it was 2010, 2012 that we put out and the body composition stuff that we put out. It's like we didn't have to go in and do some controlled experiment to be able to find something on elite level athletes. We're just taking the data that we're already collecting and presenting it. Now, some coach, some people, I think that some areas, some reasons why it may not happen uh, is going to be ego and fear. Uh, because what happens if you find out that what you uh, know works, come to find out it didn't work? Well, uh, but, but as an uh, intelligent, hopefully individual who's working to the betterment of your athletes – if what you were doing is not working, shouldn't you at some point fucking figure that out or, or find that? I mean, like, I just imagine, like, uh, as a strength coach, my responsibility is to provide the best information and the best training so that I can offer my athletes the fastest way to maximize their potential and be able to go on and do something great. If I become the bottleneck for that and, um, and yeah. you know, and, and this is, you know, I mean, this is kind of a rhetorical piece because there are coaches like that, then I should just get the fuck out of the way. And, uh, um, you know, like, or, uh, you know, hopefully you don't have, and you have enough, I guess you wherewithal and not so much pride that you can't make a change. And I think what, uh, you know, you're probably running into is guys that won't make a change because what if their shit doesn't work and they're found out to be frauds? Yeah. So Brian, has has that ever happened where there's been a complete 180? Because what, 
I just think it's unlikely where something would be totally disproven. It would you would just realize it's not working as good as you thought, or maybe I'm well. Let's give, I'll give you an, an example. I think I might have talked about it on the last podcast, but you were gone, so you didn't hear that. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it was too know. heady for you. But yeah, uh, so one of the, the like things that. that we found out, and we did a, a 180 on, just on one aspect of our program, was that we were doing Olympic lifts. And we knew that the Olympic lifts were supposed to improve explosive strength. Turns out, whenever we analyzed the data, it didn't. So we had uh, this, you know, oh, crap moment. What am I doing here? And uh, then we started putting velocity and ut- utilizing velocity to dictate the load on the Olympic lifts. And lo and behold, then it, it started working better. So it's things that it's not even major differences, right? Mm. It's just little tweaks to your program. But isn't there a and, population where Olympic lifts do increase? Well, uh, so this is the interesting thing in which I've always said about Olympic lifting. What becomes uh, Olympic lifting yeah, is a technique. really shitty way to get strong if you're not already strong. If you're if, because the the barrier for you to whether to be able to express your strength is technique. And if like uh, if, if I don't have enough reps underneath the bar where I cannot actively, you know, display my strength in a dynamic manner that allows me to drive adaptation, then all of a sudden now the the bottleneck and really the roadblock for me to get stronger is the uh, Olympic lifts and like that, or uh, is the technique piece. And that's why we just went to basically doing power variations, Mm -hmm. which to me was a longer pull. Uh, Nobody ever, you know, doesn't get, you know, full extension on a power movement. And at the end of the day, just fucking yank the bar and try to jump as as high as you can and do a vertical jump with bar in the hand. And then you start, you know, uh, it just... It was one of those things where I looked at, and I know the amount of time and effort and technique that it took for Todd Rice to get me to be proficient at the snatch, clean, and jerk, and the full variances of the movements right? for, for me to be able to drive adaptation, that I thought, you know what? This is a waste of fucking time for athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you are, you know come up in the system, and from the time you're fairly young and you can do these things, then it makes sense. But bringing in a you know 18 or 20-year-old kid and then trying to teach him to do feral variances of the lift as a kid yeah. who's not competing in Olympic lifting just didn't make any fucking sense I'm for me. I'm with you on that for sure. Yeah. And just like John said, you know, I'm completely, you know, there are there programs where it works. Absolutely. But the Olympic lifts are only a small part of our program. Bingo. Sure. You know, yeah. so it, it wasn't the, the basis of the program. Somebody who their whole program, like, you know, Todd Rice is clean and jerk and snatch. Yeah. We weren't. It was just a part of our program to cause speed strength adaptations. Mm-hmm. We weren't seeing it because gotcha, we were, gotcha. our technique was probably off. And we're probably not the greatest Olympic lifting coaches. Uh, but our guys were freaking strong mm-hmm. and uh you know but whenever we started adding the if it was the feedback or utilizing velocities of cutoff to make sure that it was light and fast i don't know but uh i do know and like i said all i care about is is it going to win a game our guys got faster and jumped higher after there we started go. using speed as a, a feedback mm-hmm. and, and then uh, cut off. And, and you and there's also a, a thing which people forget about there's ways to to mimic that dynamic uh, you know that dynamic movement like in the olympic lifts with med balls uh, yeah. You know, and uh, towards the end of my, you know, last four or five years of my NFL career, I got so big into basically doing, you know, reactive med ball dynamic and a lot of the med ball throws that I actually felt that uh, I wish I had gotten to that earlier in my career because I was, you know, so focused on, you know, snatch clean jerk coming out of college doing that stuff. Which is one plane, one primal, where yeah. you get in dynamic med ball, med ball multi-plane, plane, multi-primal. And also you think about being able to do it from a lunge position, staggered stance. I mean, basically doing everything from a bilateral hinge like we do in the uh, snatch clean and jerk just wasn't. Uh, wasn't representative of what I was asked to do on the field. So basically being able to do a lot of the dynamic loading and the Charlie Francis med ball stuff was like a fucking huge eye-opener for me. Yeah, if there was, uh, I think it's like three or four uh, meta-analysis have come out now looking at 
uh, improving jumping ability. And they looked at jumps or Olympic lifts, and they found that there was no difference between the two whenever they were the Olympic lifts were done well. And they said plyos, uh, plyometrics in the uh, meta-analysis, but if you read the studies, that eh, wouldn't plyos. You, you can't, you know, that was just simple jump training. It, you didn't have that force eccentric due to the acceleration, like a shock method, a drop jump type thing. Sure. So, you know, and that might just be me, you know, have knowing the Veroshanskys, yeah. you know, Natalia, uh, that I just get a little about that but um, but, well, it is, but it's important to understand that and then communicate that i guess in the conclusion or the one-liner so coaches don't make that mistake and then go to well if you're jumping or you're doing anything that looks like a you know unloaded or a dynamic you know where you're moving displacement people label it plyometrics and for me i always think it's really not plyometric unless there's some form of eccentric component you know whether yeah. or not you know because you think about the ability yes. to slow your force reduce foot contact time and come back so like you know in our programming we talk about jumps and i talk about plyometrics yeah. and i and i've had people ask me before and i'm like well if you're just jumping up on a box like opposed from like being able to you know violently change or being able to do like something like we'll do like a three box over where you jump down jump up kind of similar situation so yeah and with the Olympic lifts and I guess the power variations, what I enjoy for field and court sport athletes is catching in that, uh, I guess, higher position. It prepares you for a lot of the demands of sport, in which we're jumping up for a rebound and we got to control and catch in a power position to then make a play or then to move. If I missed the catch or I missed something, I got to then take a step. So I'm you're talking about what, versus, what I got in that argument with that fucking uh, guy from my uh, West side, uh, 13 year old kid. On no, the, uh, no, I did get called a, uh, a fucking pussy by a 13 year old kid on Instagram. <laughs> and I was like, man, uh, the internet where a 13 year old kid, a uh, 13 year old vegan can call me a fucking pussy on the internet. And I was like, God damn it. I love this internet thing. But, uh, no, I, I got into a discussion where somebody tapped me and this guy was saying how he thought that the Olympic movements were, were worthless for athletes. And I kind of, uh, you know, and my point was there's a lot of great athletes that don't Olympic lift, but what I always liked about the power variations was the pull and then being able to absorb a load and then drive against it. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, uh, you know, the reactive force. And in the off season, it's very, it's next to impossible for a football player to be able to, you know, uh, you know, work in a situation where he's able to absorb uh, a load and then drive against it. And I felt that, you know, being able to do some form of dynamic uh, pulling, like whether it be a power clean or a power snatch and be able to, you know, take that loading and drive against it was yeah. beneficial in the off season. And he Absolutely. would not, uh, would not fucking concede on that. And I remember at the end, I was like, just went to the Trump card. I'm like, what level of fucking football did you get to high school all right well yeah, fucking talk yeah talk to me when you get out of fucking high school and it, it just it becomes and i even said to the guy man people fail at the margins of their experience and people yeah. are uh, and you, you see this all the time brian like this is the camp i'm in and uh this is all we do this is the camp and i'm not look at other camps i don't talk to this that's what those guys do and people are so quick to guard their little fiefdoms and don't want to necessarily express or or figure out what else is going on out there no I, absolutely you know what i was i was in that uh, earlier in, in my career and it wasn't until actually looking at velocity and realizing, oh, you know what? Olympic lifts are another means of developing speed strength. That's it. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. And people are like, oh, well, it's this, flat, and the other. It's like, no, look at this meta-analysis. You want to increase your jump? You can jump or you can do Olympic lifts. It doesn't matter. 
And they're like, well, you can increase the load on the Olympic lift. Well, motherfucker, you can throw on a, a oh, ah, I just kind of got on my roll there. No, uh, uh, go, go, go. Yeah. Go with it. We love that it. You can, uh, you can throw on a weighted vest. You can grab dumbbells. Yeah. You can throw a barbell. You can grab a trap bar. Don't tell me you can't load a jump. I've done it. It's and it's less stupid. technical, well, well, easier to get the training response. Uh, well, yeah. here, here's the other thing, too. I mean, uh, um, I got into it with a guy like, uh, if your back squat goes up, does your vertical jump go up? And I'm like, yes, for uh, a novice athlete, for somebody yeah. who is unadapted, if their back squat goes up, I bet you their vertical jump goes up proportionate. And they were like, well, uh, you know, is it like, uh, you know, does that with an advanced athlete? I'm like, no. At some point, like strength isn't going to be their limiting factor. If strength is your limiting factor for your ability to jump, then it's going to be, it's going to help. But what if it's not? What if it's, you know, central nervous system efficiency, your ability to generate force? And then you talk about, well, you know, if the weight gets, you know, heavier, am I going to get stronger? Well, I mean, I, I found that and I was telling Tex, I mean, uh, we, we did a program that was based off of these fucking five by fives. And I remember doing like, Fuck, it was like 515 for five sets of five, and then I squatted 600 for singles, and I remember watching it and being like, God, I'm moving so slow. Mm -hmm. And it was like, uh, I just like hit this, hit this uh, you know, ceiling where I realized that like, man, like my ability to generate force and my, my speed is gonna be negatively affecting in terms of my top end strength. And I think, uh, you know, people kind of think like, oh, you know, if this worked for me today, then this should work for this. And you realize at some point you have to pivot the program and realize what got you to where you are isn't gonna continue to get you to drive adaptation. 100%, man, you know, Matt, uh, what was it, Matt Vea even talked about that with, uh, going from general to specific back in the 60s. Yeah. And Veroshansky talked about that with a dynamic correspondence. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it, it, guys, let's just read books and realize that, you know, just because you like to lift weights and you're a power lifter, it doesn't mean that powerlifting or Olympic lifting or uh, whatever the mode of exercise happens to be is what's going to improve performance for all athletes. Well, Todd Rice used to say to us, uh, if it was all about maximal strength, I'd be getting uh, football players down at Galt. Oh, yeah. You know, and he, he would always say to he's like, man, he goes, if, if you know, if we were looking for football players, I'd just go down there and fucking Gold's Gym. I don't give a shit. You know, if it was all about how much you could lift. And then the other one was, he was like, when was the last time somebody asked you what you bench or squat when you walked on the field? I was like, no, right. never. You know? Yeah. And so now yeah. it becomes like, you know, uh, and, and I think uh, this is a way, you know, for a lot of strength coaches, it's a way for them to justify what they do and more importantly, keep their, you know, keep their jobs. Hey, coach, everybody got, you know, five, five to seven percent stronger. You know, and the coach isn't asking him because the coach isn't in there like, well, how did they do it? Ah, I just so happened I deadlifted that 500 pounds off the guy's chest when he benched, but he fucking it looked good. You know, yeah, and it's right, like, right. Uh, you know, yeah. and it, it becomes now like the, the desire to drive numbers becomes more important than on the field performance. And then they wonder why the first guy that gets axed when the coach gets in trouble is the strength coach, which is yeah. always the, the year before it's a sacrificial lamb, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I, I, 100%, man. It's, uh, you know, it's the, and that leads to another point is like, you know, we need to find different ways to uh, justify, quantify, uh, evaluate strength conditioning coach other than just strength numbers, uh, because that it, it doesn't matter. You know, I've had plenty of guys that uh, come from a powerlifting background. They come in or, or, you know, they end up leaving here squatting 800 pounds and how good did they play? They were slow. They didn't play well. So we need to find ways to evaluate the the profession that are uh, are objective, but not bench squat clean numbers. You know mm -hmm. what? 
Well, let's change that. Well, it, is uh, um, so with a lot of the velocity-based stuff and a lot of things you're you're finding, like is there, uh, and I'm sure you have it, is there like a roadmap in terms of developing athletes where like, you know, a kid shows up as a freshman and, uh, you know, shows up to Mizzou as a, you know, football player. Uh, like, is there a kind of a, a roadmap of like introducing velocity-based training at a certain point within it? Like yeah. if he's if he's never lifted weights, does it make sense to be like, all right, like, you know, you know, Verkashansky used to talk about, uh, you know, was a two times double weight uh, two times double weight back squat as a as like an indicator for whether or not you were strong enough for a lot of the shock method and a lot of the uh, uh, or, or uh, the depth jumps. I just wonder if like uh, you know we're at the point with a lot of this stuff that if you bring in a kid who obviously has a certain you know. Uh, Genetic, I guess you could say, pool for the fact that he's you know earned a Division One scholarship to a major university. Is there kind of a roadmap that you could develop for those kids, like day one? Hey, this is what we're going to work on the first year, and this is how the program is going to progress. Yeah, you know, we uh, we had a level system that that turned out to work pretty well. And I say it turned out to work pretty well because if you look at the studies from Jacobson, you look at the studies from Miller, and then that one from. Uh, Dayton, Ohio, who the the uh, the lead professor, I can't remember uh, his name, or lead researcher, whatever, it might not have been a professor, but uh, they found that speed improved with strength for about a year, right? And we found the same stuff, speed and power. So what we ended up doing was we took the first, like, semester learned technique, and honestly, uh, you know, squat, bench, uh, and some of the other stuff, and the way that we run our program was, like, the first half a semester to a semester. Then we did the APRE with them to get them strong up to around that double body weight squat. And then we basically did like uh, some prolipin or some uh, triphasic type stuff. Because uh, at that point, we'd really developed the concentric, but we hadn't really hit the eccentric too well. And that's, uh, you know, we could talk about that later because I found some really cool stuff uh, just uh, recently. And then, uh, then uh, after you know, we were doing some velocity with some prolipin or triphasic. Then we were doing more of the, uh, honestly, it was a West side program with a lot more plyos and, uh, and stuff like that. So we were doing, uh, heavy strength, dynamic effort in plyo and our guys were developing for three years, you know, three, three and a half years instead of the one that we were seeing. So, you know, we were getting those mid tier recruits, but we were perennially a top 25 team for a long time. And, uh, you know, then 2008, uh, I'm not hesitant to say, you know, that we had a tremendous quarterback and we were ranked number one in the country. You know, it, it's uh, I think that the development of the athletes is where, you know, we were doing it just we were able to do it longer than other teams. And that's what uh, uh, that's what led to it. Now, I think there's some ways that we could have done things better uh, by looking at that roadmap and sitting back uh, because we had our biases. A lot of us were powerlifters. So we, you know, squat, bench, and deadlift was our, our thing. And I think that if we would have started to look towards uh, different methods of performing the exercises, like I'm right now, I'm working on a uh, a lunge progression article that you know how to change the lunge to be more sport specific rather than the way that we we look at it now, and how to change work that through your annual plan. It's kind of a follow up to the squat uh, article, and you know, it, it whenever you get down to it, it's getting to do the lunge the way that Doc Yesis is talking about doing the lunge rather than the way that he wrote how to do the lunge because those are, are very, very uh, different. You know, whenever I, I – he hated that I, I did this, but uh, we as a, a staff for this local facility that works with some youth athletes I help out at, 
uh, you know, teaching, you know, doing education for them and, you know, helping run their data. I had, we read one of Doc's books for uh, a staff read. And then while we're doing a Skype with them, it's like, hey, read this and coach him to do it the way that you, that this says. And what Doc had was like, no, that's not how you do it. They're like, well, this is how it reads. And that's why there's some confusion. So, you know, I'm, I'm writing an article uh, on that and uh, to hopefully clarify that. But I think that if we could look at different exercises to be thrown in and different emphases at different times, I think if we would have gone to some more sports specific exercises after the general stuff was done, that we could have had higher results rather than, but we were stuck in our own biases. And I, I never would have seen this having not moved away from the day-to-day coaching. Because, you know, whenever you're in it, you can't see the forest for the trees. But now stepping out in a way and looking and learning some different things, uh, I can see the uh, I, I can see kind of where uh, I personally I can't speak for the whole staff, but where I personally went wrong with my programming and my viewpoints. But I think we might have gotten a full five years of development versus, you know, the three uh by looking at things just a little bit differently and not looking at it from squat bench numbers. And if, Oh my God, we might, he might not have gone from a 700 to a seven, you know, 20 squat. So obviously we suck as coaches. Well, what happened to his sprint? What happened to his ability to play even beyond sprinting agility and change of direction because the sport itself is a skill, you know, uh, we just need to get to these double body weight squats, deadlifts, and then, uh, Look at some other things. And I'm not saying don't continue to push strength, especially if we change the the exercise. But we need to not just get stronger for the sake of getting stronger once they have the requisite level because there's no further adaptation. Well, I, I just remember reading in uh, one of the probably the most telling things that I remember was uh, like the huge light, uh, light went on in my head was, uh, you know, reading Super Training where they talked about, you know, the uh, it was the Olympic shot put guys uh, where they got them up to about a 200 kilo bench press. And they found yeah. that a 200 kilo science bench press. Yeah, well, yeah, was, was that science of practice? It, yeah, it was science of practice. Both, it was but it, yeah. definitely science of practice. But they, yeah, they talked yeah. about the 200 kilo bench was uh, – uh, optimal for those guys throwing a what is it, 16 pound shot? Actually, you know what, Tex? I want to correct you. I think it was actually Thomas's Kerr's uh, The Science of Sport Training, the orange book with the metal on the front. That's where he talked about the, the stuff because I, I uh, was looking at it, and whenever I read that, and I had Christian Cantwell. The I'm like, well, you know what? I think there's a second level here. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, all the books now kind of melt together for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like you're like pick and choose. But I remember reading the, uh, you know, the the 200 kilo bench and the amount of time and effort, uh, musculature strength, uh, you know, the the tension that they needed to create to get those guys up to a 220 bench negatively affected their ability to throw the shot. And so they found that like the gold standard was like if you can lift that, you know, two, you know, 200 kilos, uh, you know, within a, you know, fairly, I think it was like one one thumb off of the smooth as, as a fast bench press that was the strength you needed to be able to drive force yep. against it and then anything else outside of that slowed them down to the point where they couldn't develop velocity and i remember like yeah. that little piece uh was like huge for me where i found like okay here were here were the strength numbers and the things that i needed to do in the weight room that let me know that i was ready to go out and do my job and the time and the effort that it took for me to go past those took away from the other stuff in terms of the skill development the speed and, the, and all the other training and yeah. i and I, I think for a lot of the athletes like you said people are just getting strong to get strong but at the end of the day have they gotten to a position where they're you know they're optimal and they're playing and they're able to you know do you know 
what they need to on the field. And I keep thinking like, there's gotta be more so than just a weight room test. I mean, there, it would be interesting and, and doing a lot of your velocity based training and being able to hit those numbers. If you could almost say, Hey, here's a one RM. Can you move X amount of weight at a certain speed and kind of putting it on those guys instead of saying, Hey, you know what? We're just going to look at top end all the time. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, man. And, uh, you know, he's talking about that reminded me of, I don't know if you're familiar with Christian Cantwell, you know, he's multiple time Olympian shot putter, seven time world champion. Uh, he was one of my guys and, uh, he's the only time I've ever seen this role violated, you know, because he threw his best, he was throwing 73 feet whenever he was bitching 635, <laughs> but 635 was fast, you know, it <laughs> that's, was, that's a, that's a lot of weight pop. You know, he had a little pause and then it just, it, it flew off his chest, had a little pause the sticking point and it flew up again. And he was moving, you know, 200 kilos, 210 kilos, 455 pounds, extremely fast. We're watching a video right yeah, now. Yeah, no, and, and uh, I, I just remember all those guys. Yeah. It, it was and always about like, one thumb off. That video off was like the 620 one, isn't it? It's and then he six, went on to do a little bit more. 630 raw in April Okay, that was it. Uh, for a, yeah. uh, that's got to be a pretty damn close world record because in 2009 to bench 630 with a close grip. Well, the record raw, I remember watching James Henderson do 700 with a pause. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, uh, who was it? It was Kaz did like six, was it 660? Yeah, before he hurt his neck. Yeah. And yeah, yep. uh, and yeah something crazy. And like, uh, but if you guys had ever seen Kaz in person, it's a fucking scary individual. So. Yeah, I, mean, I remember whenever I met him, the only time I've ever met him, and it was, uh, he was still big. You know, we're talking about 2000, 2001, and uh, I've met so many different people. There's only two people that I've ever really fangirled around. One was Bill Kazmaier, and the other was Bill Kramer. And, yeah. and uh, I think Bill Kramer thought I was a moron until the, about this past <laughs> May because I was like, yeah, 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 nice to meet you. And, uh, you know, that, but that's, that's it. But, yeah, he was just ginormous. And uh, I, I still got, you know, matter of fact, I could probably go over to my bookshelf and dig it out. The uh, Bill Kazmaier training uh, manuals, I guess it was like little folded up, paper clipped, uh, stapled thing. Now that from back to 10, day. where like all he did was sets of uh, sets of 10. And then it was like accessory work was like eight tens and 12s and 15s. Oh yeah. 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 It was awesome. Straight up bodybuilding stuff. I remember looking at Kaz's program and I remember thinking like, huh, fuck this guy just did. I mean, it was like, you know, sets of eight to, I mean, straight up bodybuilding sets of 10. And then he went in there and would just like knock out these crazy singles and being like, holy shit, dude, this dude, yeah. I mean, just genetic freak. He was. And, uh, I didn't know about this thing called steroids at the time. And I think I was like 15 <laughs> trying to do the program. And after about you know three, four weeks, I was just completely fried. Couldn't get out of bed and anything like that. I didn't know what overtraining was. So, it sounds like yeah. when I was 14 and we got a hold of the Dorian Yates uh, back routine for the Mr. Olympia. And we decided like, well, we're going to do this program. And it was like. I mean, dude, it was like an hour of back, like four days a week. And back I remember, attack. oh, dude, I remember like by like the third week, I couldn't straighten my arms anymore. And I was like, my mom's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know this thing we've been doing at the weight room. It's fucking awful. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah and we didn't know about drugs then either. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in kind of reading up on on your lunge take because we're how we teach the lunge is essentially very similar setup to the squat. So our objective, yeah. again, is transfer of training. So our squat setup is kind of the universal athletic position, toes forward, knees over the arches, the instep. So when we teach our athletes to lunge, that forward foot is, is in the same position, toes forward, knees over that arch, that instep. 
and we're kind of teaching towards a, a posterior chain dominance. So one of your, yeah, yeah one of your lectures at uh, the NSCA conference in January is all about ACL injury prevention, mm-hmm. and our injury prevention method is essentially teaching you to move in a lot of the, uh, I guess, modes that you were talking about uh, with your injury prevention lecture. Uh, so maybe there's some some correlation. We're teaching very similar things, and uh, again, that's well, the, sign of a quality. The, the one that drove me crazy was when I watched people lunge, I watched everybody lunge on a tightrope. And I remember when I'd learned to jerk, especially in Olympic lifting, uh, if I jerked with my feet closer together, uh, one, it was longer, and two, I was unstable. So I got to the point where I was like, well, here's my hip width. I'm just going to basically just move my feet forward and back. And, uh, you know, and then I was a much stable position. So when I would go teach the lunge position, or when I would lunge, I always lunged within, like, you know, my feet are underneath, uh, you know, like, you know, from a, you know, let's say a pulling position. And I go lunge out. I always wanted to lunge a little bit because also I knew that if my knee was over my instep, I was dramatically stronger than if it was outside. And that just came from playing football on a kick step, you know, being able to, to slide back and stay in that position that if my right. knee got outside of my foot, I was weak. If it was inside kind of within that, you know, uh, almost like that, that triangle pyramid, uh, right. I was dramatically stronger. And, uh, it just was, you know, as we started kind of teaching these things and going through athletes and just watching people do it poorly, I'm like, shit, man, people don't know how to fucking lunge. Everybody kind of gets in this narrow position and they all want to lunge on a tightrope and they want to drive their knees out and they're completely unstable. And then they realize why, you know, and then instantly, what do they say? Oh, the lunge doesn't have any application towards strength training or more points performance. Not, not to speak negatively, but, uh, I spoke at a, a UT conference and Dan John was there and he was spent five minutes poo-pooing on the lunge. So I did the reverse and basically talked 20 minutes on the lunge for ACL injury prevention. And I was like, man, I, I want you to see what we're looking at just to help kind of guide in that perspective because they're going to wa- – the coaches there are going to walk away and then say – and the the same negative thing about the lunge, but there's so much opportunity. Dude, with I heard movement. I heard rip shit on the lunge for years and told me how lunges are worthless for getting sore. And I asked him, I'm like, well, everything you're teaching is some form of bilateral hip hinging. Uh, do you know what position I've never been in in football? A bilateral hip hinge. I've always like it's very rare that I'm ever in a position where my feet are you know side by side directly underneath me and I get to extension. I'm always playing off of one leg. I'm always moving, transitioning, and force and doing this stuff. And I'm like, you know, if you're not if you're always teaching something that's a static loading up and down, and you're never forcing somebody to move through space and control, you know, eccentrics, whatnot. Like uh, you're never getting anybody prepared for the demands of their sport. And then he's like, well, that's why it's called starting strength. I'm like, okay, well then fuck. Okay, then, then that's fine. Then let's talk about, you know, novice athletes versus progression. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, Brian, you've seen this, man. Like everybody, uh, everybody has like one method, one idea, one program that's universal towards everybody. And you're like, dude, people develop at different rates and different adaptations. And to think that the same program is going to work for everybody uh, at, at every point is just it's either fucking ignorance or, uh, or hubris. And I'm like, dude, you have yeah. to be able to move and be able to look and say, where is this guy deficient? What do I need to add to this program? Or what do I have to pivot? Absolutely. hundred percent. Brian, I'd like to get into uh, some pieces of your NSCA lecture and injury prevention. So the okay. ACL was the, the topic of your discussion, but I saw, I found a lot of elements that we can see it to filter how you're looking at a sport to build your program whether it's ACLs, whether it's shoulders, whether it's the common injuries. And one line I loved was poor execution strengthens injury mechanisms. So what is your approach to injury prevention and building outside the squats, the bench, and the cleans, and the the core lifts 
to help your athletes succeed and stay on the field or court? Well, you've got to look at what the, the mechanisms of injury are rather than just what the injury is. And I know that that's, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned in the talk, uh, whenever I started out in this field, it was very, very different. I mean, we're talking 1998. I was an undergraduate assistant. I believe I was a sophomore and I had my own teams, right? So, you know, uh, I, I don't know how it was for, for you, John, with, with Todd Rice, but it was one coach, 21 sports, 530 athletes. So I got thrown on the fire right away. And soccer was one of my first sports. And I thought, okay, well, if there's a, uh, you know, a knee injury, then let's, uh, let's strengthen the muscles around the knee. And the VMO was the buzzword. I didn't even know what a VMO was until I took, you know, until I started like teaching anatomy, I thought the VMO was its own specific muscle rather than the, just uh, <laughs> the oblique fibers on the vastus medialis. I mean, that's an exaggeration, of course, but, uh, it was, uh, yeah, somebody's going to be like, oh, you're an idiot if you thought that for this. Uh, it's like, no, dude, I'm, I'm just trying to be funny. That's uh, I'm glad that I'm not the only one uh, that laughs when people start talking about the, the VMO as, uh, as the deciding factor for knee, uh, a strength of the VMO as being like the, the breakneck, like the deciding factor for knee injury. So. Yeah, and, it, you know, if we're talking about chondromalacia, patellar tracking, it does have a lot to do with it because vastus lateralis is huge. The oblique fibers and their fiber orientation as they come in and insert down into the patella. Yeah, it pulls it immediately. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. But that's only one aspect. There's one little tiny aspect of knee injuries. And then uh, what we've got here is, uh, you know, what were the what was the mechanism, man? And that that was that hip adduction, internal rotation and anterior translation of the tibia. And, you know, what caused that? And it turns out that it was the hip muscles. And whenever we got strong in the general sense, you know, uh, all the, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this during the talk, but, you know, most soccer players, women's soccer weigh between 120 and 140 pounds. And there was not a sole member of my team that squatted under 200 because I was a power lifter. By God, that's what I'm going to push. Uh, so whenever I got them strong, uh, I trained the hell out of the posterior chain to which, you know, the, the hamstring muscles, they all don't attach into the back. They wrap around the side and the front of the tibia, right? So they're going to prevent post uh, anterior tibial translation because they pull posteriorly. Uh, and then uh, I strengthen the muscles of the, uh, the hip, the abductors and the external rotators. And lo and behold, what are we not having? Non-contact ACL tears. We had zero for eight years. We had two contact tears, and both of those were uh, – kids that had torn it before. And we all know that the greatest predictor of future injury, it isn't uh, FMS score, anterior reach, you know, some movement screening thing. It's previous injury. So, you know, it's uh, whenever those are the two kids that, that, that tore it. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'll, I don't care. I, I can't even consider that to be, you know, one, it was contact. So there's nothing that you can do if somebody, you know, hits you in the leg with a sledgehammer, you're going to bruise, break, or tear something. Uh, you know, that it, it's a contact injury. And then, too, since it was a previous injury, it's like, yeah, well, you know, shit's ha shit happens. That, that's just the way that it goes. But, you know, if you just counter the mechanisms, and then there's some other stuff that's coming out now that I'm looking at. Uh, a guy from University of Ohio, I cannot remember his name, but he's looking at the nervous system and its, its impacts on uh, ACL tears. And I'm um, like, yeah, you know, and it just goes to, to show that the body is a total unit and things work systemically, holistically. If you only look at it from one, one standpoint, you're missing other things. 
You know what I mean? You know, it's like uh, the the old adage. You know, I, I think I stole this from Jay Dawes that you know, hammer is a great tool, but it, for driving in nails, but it really sucks to wash windows. And uh, you know, that's uh, that's what it is. It's like, well, we can look at the mechanism, and we can look at it from a muscular uh, standpoint, countering, and it worked great. But you know what? There might be some kids that just from happenstance tear their ACL because of some other factor. Could it be from stress? Could it be from, uh, you know, from some other thing? And also, whenever we talk about it and think about it, these non-contact I- I- injuries, guy, you know, some people you, you hear on social media, they're blaming the strength coach whenever somebody has some sort of non-contact injury. It's like, well, was there a divot in the field? Was there, you know, did they just have a baby? Did they have, you know, there's all these other things that go into it. So, uh, you know, we got to look at things from a more holistic standpoint and step back and look at a 30,000 foot view rather than I have a hammer mm-hmm. and I'm going to use it. Brian, are you, are you in a position to go a little deeper on uh, what this guy's finding with the nervous system as it relates to the injuries? You know, I, I'm not because it, it's one of those things that we're talking about that uh, Dan Lorenz posted some stuff on it and, uh, I was reading it and it was stuff that I have going on in my gut. It's like, what is the nervous system, you know, with the, the recruitment? Like if I've got fatigue, that's going to affect my motor unit recruitment. And then that could, you know, it, it impact things. So even if I've done everything that there is, mm-hmm. uh, I know that it's test week. And if I watch these kids, uh, it, here's where it really started. Whenever I do the, the uh, practical application days, my sports performance conditioning class, and I've got athletes that I knew because I had trained them and this was last year. So I knew that they were I, I knew what they did and they knew what they were capable of. And I knew that they knew how to land. We did this during midterms on our plyo day. And all of a sudden their knees are caving in. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, better than that. She's like, yeah, I know. I just can't stop it. And I'm like, it's midterms. Yeah, there's Academic something. stress. Shit. Here's something that I never thought of before. And, uh, you know, and that's where it kind of cued me in. And it wasn't until last week, the guy, you know, I could probably pull up the guy's name on uh, uh, to see what the researcher's name is. I can remember that he's at University of Ohio there in Athens. Uh, Boom, boom. Here's Twitter. I mean, this is that's a rabbit hole because it's it can get into also just the psychological component, like being able to manage the stress. Well, I mean, yeah. Right. So it's like about this, too, if if uh, he. His point was right, like the the greatest determinator or like determining factor for injury is a previous injury. I know uh, I've seen ACL tears for people that have patellar tendonitis. So like all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, an athlete has, you know, severe patellar tendonitis where all of a sudden now they kind of get this thing where their knee just buckles. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, uh, when I, you know, I had a non-contact ACL injury, had never had an ACL tear, but uh, had terrible patellar tendonitis because we fucking wrapped our knees. Uh, Anything over 225, we were fucking putting knee wraps on. You know, dude, you, you, you're talking bench press, right? No, uh, Brian, Brian knows exactly. We're about the same age. You remember the deal. Yeah. It was like, you know, Hey, you throw your belt on and you fucking put knee wraps on and you're going to do them from 225 up to fucking six or 700 pounds. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to wrap your knees because That's then right. it was viewed as the knee wraps were safe. They were protective. Yeah. And, um, I developed severe patellar tendonitis and I'm fucking running on a reverse and I plant on the ground and my knee just buckles, which used to happen all the time walking downstairs and I slip in the grass and fucking tear my ACL. 
And yep. I remember thinking, like, as soon as I did, I was like, uh, they were like, oh, what happened? Your ACL gave out. I'm like, no, my knee buckled as I was turning, and I tore my ACL. And, uh, you know, and so, like, I think now about, you know, uh, whenever people ask me about knee wraps, I'm like, ah, sure. Um, do I want a 13 or 15-year-old kid wrapping their knees? And he, and he said over 225? No. If you're not a competitive yeah. power lifter, uh, I'm never probably going to have you wrap your knees. Uh, I'm not going to have you wear a belt until you're over 80%. And so I right. think, uh, uh, I think the information in that way is getting better. Um, just because, you know, for what we were doing with old man Zangus, it was like fucking throw the wraps on. Yeah. The, uh, researcher's name is Dustin grooms. And the, uh, the first article that I read for him, it was called uh, central nervous system adaptation after ligamentous injury. A summary of theories, evidence, and clinical interpretation, and that's in the Journal of Sports Medicine, and that's all I can see out right now without going and getting glasses. And uh, good enough, that'll get us somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I found him. We'll we'll reach out. Hopefully, uh, connect him. There you go. Dive deep. Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess sticking with central nervous system a little bit, I want to get into compensation patterns. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we experience with athletes, and then whether it's a, a freshman first-timer or somebody that is new to weightlifting or has been weightlifting for years and then teaching them a new approach technique to a movement, whether it's yep. the squat, the lunge, or a strong person introducing them to Olympic lifts, and we give them a cue that's different from what they've been doing or direction, and they're like, uh, that doesn't feel right. So they've developed a compensation pattern. We're doing our damnedest to put them in a proper mechanic position or execution so how do you communicate with those athletes and is there anything going on i guess to create that compensation pattern that we can effectively battle within our our program or coaching you know sometimes it doesn't feel right because you're actually doing it right for the first time uh you know that's usually the way that uh that i've explained it to my athletes because i've gotten that same thing well that doesn't feel right it's like dude here let's video and this is what it's supposed to look like this is what you were doing. Okay, well, I see that that looks, that looks more like it. Okay, then let's just keep going on. And, and that's the main way that I've been able to, to get around it is video, uh, especially on the Olympic lifts. You know, I, I admit that I'm not the greatest coach. My cueing or something is, is off, you know, and, and maybe that's why we, you know, uh, that I, I'm not an Olympic lift guy, that I'm more the jumps, the hybrids, the med ball and things like that. But what I can tell you is that, uh, you know, it doesn't feel right, video it. And then you show and they're like, okay, I get it. And even if it doesn't feel right, well, they know that they're practicing a new skill. And, uh, you know, it's like how, how many times could you dribble a soccer ball the first time that you try juggle, juggle a soccer ball the first time you tried? Oh, well, one or two. Okay. And then now how many can you do? And that, I mean, that's what works with the soccer players. Like, oh, a hundred. Uh, and it's just, it, it's learning a new skill and everything that you do the first time is going to be awkward. So like if John, uh, it sounds like he's a guitar player. Well, what if he goes to play the violin? It's another string instrument. Uh, it's going to feel awkward and it's not going to feel right until he learns how to, to do that. And no, I, I suck at the guitar. No, I suck at the guitar. It was funny. I was telling Tex when I uh, was early in my NFL career, I used to play the guitar and I dislocated uh, three fingers. And for like a, like a bunch of years, they were kind of like, you know, permanently uh, fucking bent. And I've worked on getting them straight and like, because I didn't want to have those like, you know, like uh, offensive line fingers where it's like constantly like kind of broken. And so yeah. uh, I've worked on straightening them to the enough where now I can go back and play the guitar. So I told my little girls if uh, if I get them guitar lessons and guitars, I would play with them. So oh, that's, okay. that's what we end up doing. So it's uh, but it, it, it comes back pretty quick. But uh, after my hiatus and then when I was at their uh, school, like or, you know, they go to their 
whatever their lessons, the te- <laughs> their teacher's like, oh, God, look at your fingers. I'm like, yeah, this is what fucking 10 years in the NFL do to you. You got these pregnant knuckles. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's kind of like I tell people with, uh, you know, they're talking about physical activity. They're like, oh, you're you're all banged up. And I'm like, no. See, whenever you try and do anything at the highest level, it does. it's not healthy. It's not safe, whatever you do. <laughs> you know, it's like trying to squat a thousand pounds plus. It's like that wreaks hell on your body and I'm paying for it now. Uh, but, you know, strength training and whatever it is healthy, but not at the highest level. Mm-hmm. Well, that can be said on like a, of a number of competitive endeavors, right? You like know, uh, you drinking? Start to, no, that's fine. <laughs> eating? Pretty competitive No, eating. that's fine as well. Um, well, it depends. What, what are we eating? Hot dogs or uh, <laughs> omelets? <laughs> well, well how, about, how about coming back from injury? So say I have that the ACL surgery, shoulder surgery. I'm not going to be the oh, same. Uh, my... n- not to cut you off. I just want to are. Before you get to that point, uh, Brian, do you have an opinion about uh, which ACL uh, repair is is by far the most successful from like the cadaver to the hamstring to, you know, different pieces? I'm just wondering if. uh, Yeah, cadaver and hamstring are crap. I mean, it's the uh, uh, the, middle third of the patellar tendon. Well, you know what they're actually finding? And, you know, if you want, I can maybe make a connection with Tim Hewitt with you guys. And, And he is a tremendous researcher on this is actually quadriceps tendon. So the quad tendon is what's above the kneecap, the yeah. tendon below. So you don't have the uh, you, you've got a lot more of it, and you don't have the patellar tendonitis issues that happen afterwards. Yeah, that, uh, so yeah, and um, that they're finding that that may be the uh, that might be the new gold standard. Uh, I I had always kind of hoped that the cadaver would be by far the best because, I mean, I I saw guys have a cadaver ACL that were back in six weeks. And I remember thinking, like, fuck, man, like when I did my – they used the middle third of my patellar tendon, the, the patellar tendonitis and the rehab and that, dude, just from cutting up the joint put me at six to nine months. You're, you're absolutely right on that, but the failure rate on the cadaveric grafts is is the highest of all. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah. So the and that's why I'm saying that uh, using the term, you know, that they're shit is that uh, you know you're like 15 times more likely to have a, a failure of the cadaveric graft than you are a hamstring. A hamstring is significantly more. I want to say three to five times more likely to fail than the bone tendon bone patellar graft. So you know, auto grafts are better than allo grafts. The patellar tendon is better than the hamstring. And, you know, we think about this, too, with the hamstring grafts. The, uh, and I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that things couldn't change as a result of training because I think that there's some different things that you could do. But right now, uh, they've looked at what happens from the hamstring graft, and they've looked muscularly. And with the, the ultrasound tool, the research-grade ultrasound that they go in and then they can look at the fiber orientation, it's just that a lot of stuff is, you know, where the muscle should be like this, well, it's all scar tissued in there, and it's not, it never remodeled. It's like, well, did we look at doing super heavy acicentrics to try and straighten out the fascicles? And I, I kind of highly doubt that. Uh, so to say that, you know, maybe that that's a, a bad one, but the retail rate is higher because you've got, uh, in my opinion right now, and I'm, I'm speaking uh, non-research right now, is if you got a muscle that counters the mechanism and you damage that muscle on that side, that you're going to have a greater mechanism. So then it's going to have a greater failure rate there for, for sure. Uh, and if it's because the strength of the, the, uh, the tendon of the hamstrings is lower than the patella, I don't know. 
I know that they take it longer. They fold it up a few times and stick it in there to get to the same size. But is it strength? Is it the orientation? I don't know. Interesting. Don't know. They, yeah. Have they ever looked at taking like a um, like a cadaver uh, patellar tendon or actually using any of the cadaver parts, like looking for more advantageous pieces of it, or are they just always trying to use your own tissue? That's a great question. I I don't know that you know Tim Hewitt would be a fantastic person to ask that question to. Yeah, we we had him episode one hundred and four. If y'all want to check back, but I think it's time to get him back. Yeah, or because getting... he's learned a lot more. And I by one hundred and four was he talking about the uh, quad tendon at that point? No, we we uh, focused on just injury mechanisms. Uh, I had went freaking uh, I guess balls deep on his research and then had him on. But uh, I think definitely I'm sure he's made some strides in the past few years. Yeah, and you know either him or if you wanted to get somebody different. Greg Myers is one of his uh, co-authors tremendously. Greg's actually done a lot of stuff with, uh, uh, hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn for him and getting him in trouble, but uh, have you heard of the C-collar? No. So the C-collar actually increases blood volume by 3% with no increase in uh, uh, pressure of the brain. So it decreases brain slosh. And in the youth hockey, whenever they did pre and post of that uh, fMRI of the brain, it showed absolutely no damage through the course of the season. Uh, so, you know, that, that shows some definite promise for, for concussions there. Now, Wait, what's it called? Is, uh, the C-collar? C-collar, yeah. So where does it go? It goes on the head? On your neck, and it goes around, and it puts a little bit of pressure on the jugular vein. Oh, wow. So and it causes it, you know, blood can still flow through, but it causes enough to back up. And So they're you know, using it, uh, some kind of BFR for, for, the, uh, for the brain? Yeah, but if we say that, then the next thing you know, people are going to put knee wraps around their neck, and then I'm going to get sued. So. <sighs> it just sounds like, uh, um, isn't that how... Uh, Don't you use a belt, John? Uh, yeah, I was going to say Michael Hutchinson and also uh, uh, the dude from Kung Fu, actually. Yeah, we're, we're doing, uh, yeah right. Yeah, uh, what, yeah what was the his erotic name? asphyxiation. Yeah. Uh, gosh. Dean... Uh, I, I, I keep going with Kwai John Kane because that was yeah, his name on was, Kung Fu. That was the first thing I wanted to say, <laughs> Yeah, I was, like, I was like, Kwai John... Oh, um... David Carradine. Yeah, David, David Carradine, that was Yeah, it. and then yeah. Michael Hutchinson from the guy from NXS. So, and also Luke Summers on a, yeah. Still ticking, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> but now the, uh, it, it actually, the, it was kind of a cool thing that they they started studying other animals that utilize their head. And uh, why don't they get concussions? Well, and they looked at rams, you know, up at ele- and they're up at elevation. So, you know, the blood uh, thins and, you know, it, it increases volume through that. And then they looked at woodpeckers. Is how in the hell does a woodpecker not get a concussion slamming its head all around? And the omohyoid muscle that we've got, nobody know what it knows what it does in humans, but in uh, in the woodpeckers, it starts on your hyoid bone, comes around the back and wraps around to the front. And whenever they get ready to to slam their head against the uh, the tree, that muscle contracts. It shunts the blood to cause it to build up and not allow brain slosh. Well, they beat their head and then whenever they're done they it goes away so then uh yeah that's uh that's what they've been that's so, what they based it off of so by reducing the blood well i mean yeah we're gonna increasing the blood or, or yeah in, well increasing the force of which the blood because i mean when you think about bfr it's restricting venous blood flow but kind of arterial blood flow so it's you're kind of uh getting the blood to pool in such a way in the brain that uh i guess is it uh you know creating a higher androgen effect or you know because yeah, I, mean, I don't it, know man yeah I mean, and it's still really new and i'm not like i'm not gonna go try it with my athletes yet because it you're it, wolf's law right you know the body adapts to any stimulus sure. placed upon it 
So what's going to happen to the jugular veins as a result of being restricted? Are they going to stiffen? And then, well, what's that might lead to an increase in stroke risk. I, I don't know. Well, so I, uh, I don't know if they've researched that or not. And I'd recommend Greg to talk about that. More no, well, yeah, well, we'll definitely look at it. I, I, I know when uh, I, I went and saw a massage, uh, like a massage lady, and she worked on all like the jugular and the scalenes in my neck. And yeah. I remember uh, her like telling me, she's like, you know, uh, um, your the muscles in your neck are extremely uh, like overdeveloped and kind of like, you know, not typical. And I'm like, well, yeah, look what you fucking do for a living. And I remember she was like, oh, and then like, you know, talking about it, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you think about uh, to survive the task, like you said, Wolf's Law, you develop certain adaptations that allow you to do this thing. And like, you know, whether it be fashion, the skull or or I did uh, or other, you know, mechanisms to safeguard. I just wonder if a lot of this stuff is people haven't done the amount of work necessary to allow them to be able to survive the task. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of both. Like, you, like know? you, you maybe you you just had jacked up neck muscles. Well, genetically, but, right? but, a little bit of both. It can go but both I, ways, I, couldn't it? I always think about this, and I know this is totally fucking anecdotal, but uh, we used to, when I was in high school, as a, a deload stuff, we used to do a ton of a Hatfield squats. And I, and, uh, and I remember, you know, old man's Angus being like, oh, it's great to get the, you know, it's, uh, it's great to, um, you know, for your shoulders or whatever, but also he liked it from the fact, like, I want you to drive your head back into the pad and keep your head up. And I want you to, you know, use it for, uh, for neck strength. And I remember like, that was like, uh, something that when somebody asked me about training neck, I'm like, oh, we did dips and shrugs and we did a ton of safety bar squats driving our necks back. And I always think like, maybe that was why, uh, you know. I was, you know, who knows, like maybe avoided neck injury or didn't get the concussions or maybe didn't get the stingers as much because that was something we always, always kind of worked on. But I always remember those kind of static holds of driving my neck into the pad while we did the uh, Hatfield squats, uh, I thought was extremely beneficial. So maybe in kind of a similar kind of way, but people, I don't think look at, you know, like, cause you think about, oh, how are you going to develop the neck? We did manual resistance, but also that isometric hold of being able to balance the weight and drive it back, I think was, was, was valuable as well. Well, it might be. That's interesting. Now, for listeners, if you want to see a practical application of nature at work and you're the type of person listening to this at your computer, Google goat knocks out cow. It's fucking awesome. (laughs) You haven't seen. Yeah. Roth posted it just like a couple days ago. Goat knocks out cow. It's like a hundred, like maybe a hundred. I'm making numbers up people. 150 pound goat and 800 pound cow and the cow charges it. And this goat just fucking boom pops him and the fucking cow goes limp. Uh, just fucking we, we we have goats uh, my neighbor has goats and it's hilarious to watch the goats fight because as they go they dip their heads and like they like make sure they get it right on the crown and they knock it out so it's pretty awesome to watch them fight but uh hey yeah. there, there there's another one of uh at some place where a rhino is eating its food oh, yeah and those on twitter and those pig come over and he basically fucking skewers the pig with his horn i was like holy shit yeah that was awesome all right let's watch it yeah but that that would be a that would be another be the hammer video yeah for sure, dude. I'll send it. Let's yeah, see. Well, that's a I'll good send one. It. And boom! Oh, the fucking cow is down. <laughs> Jesus Christ! That's a little goat too. Yeah, it's a fucking tiny goat. Uh, you know, whatever. I think we got a slow mo coming. <laughs> this thing's out. And boom! That cow is fucking down. Anyways, all right, we're an audio only podcast. Yeah, just no. reminding I told people uh, what to Google. I got all a question right. for Brian. Um, Brian, like, what? Um, you know, like you were, you know, uh, like you said, you you were, uh, you know, fucking uh, powerlifter chasing a big total. You got into strength conditioning, and now you've kind of transitioned on this other side where now you're doing the kind of the the, the clinical research and you know, and have kind of put yourself in this kind of teaching role. Uh, what? Um, if you could sit there and like, you know, think like 20 years from now, looking back, what would you 
feel comfortable or what would you be happy as being like the, uh, you know, the mark that you made in terms of the transition? Like, you know, like, like when you look back, like what's the one piece that you say, Hey, you know what? Like I spearheaded this, I drove it and this was a change for the better. You know, my goal is just to make a difference. So looking back, you know, if I can make people think differently about training, you know, and move it away from just the squat bench and deadlift or just the clean and the, the snatch, you know, that's, that's where I, I want to, you know, that that's what I'm going for. And that's whenever I know that, you know, I'm never going to be happy unless I, I am king of the world and world domination and everything. I'm not going to be happy, mm-hmm. but you know what, uh, on my tombstone, you know, if a strength coach came up, they could write, he made a difference. And I would be, uh, I, that's, that's my goal. But I mean, it's, it goes both ways, Brian. I mean, cause there are guys out there that one of our listeners always hits me up on this dude. I don't know if I should drop the guys. It's functional patterns. Have you seen this fucking guy yeah, no. who basically is just like shit talks barbells. He's like, oh, you think a guy with a who fucking can live heavy barbells can do this? And he does some fucking ballet act on like, it's just, and he's there, like, man, it's compelling. It's compelling statements. I'm like, he's fucking making it up. And listen, I'm not saying barbells are the only solution either, yeah. but you can't just fucking knock out something wholesale well, you know what i mean dude, and that, we've said it for years man people fail at the margins of their experience sure. and also people yeah. people guard their fiefdoms which is uh the one thing that's driven me fucking crazy in this whole you know because i mean i uh, like i look at it from a different way and that um i always looked at like you know me as the athlete and i had coaches and then you know for my entire life i i was taking what I was taught and being able to translate it on the field and I was analytical enough to see what I, what worked and what didn't. And by the 10 you get, you know, by the time after 20 years of doing this stuff, I can tell you exactly what translated the field and what the fuck didn't. Right. And you develop this fucking highly tuned sense of fucking nonsensical bullshit that when I hear it, like, uh, you know, LaCharles Bentley putting out that thing about the VMO or him teaching all of his offensive linemen to play solely on the insides of their feet and not keeping balance. And like, as I'm going through it, like not only do I know the strength and conditioning, do I know the physiology, I know the application and I've seen this shit in practical that I can look and say, you know what, that's not right. And also to say, I don't know everything. So like, you know, like, fuck, I, I always love reading Brian's stuff because it's uh, it's compelling and it's great information because it allows me to sit there and think, what do I have to do in terms of upping what we do? And I think like, uh, you know, uh, at Power Athlete, I'm really blessed because I have, a you know, a few thousand athletes a day that check into our training. So if I want to test something, I can drop it in in, in these, uh, you know, six week cycles. Like right now we're doing uh, uh, a bunch of PAP work. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, uh, post um, uh post-activation potentiation potentiation. and like we did like two cycles so it would have been 12 weeks building up to this thing and uh, I would just never drop a new person into this level of training because it's highly advanced but unfortunately there's people that skate in and out and people that are new to this shit are like I'm getting fucking destroyed and I'm like well how long have you been here oh I just joined last week and I'm like so you realize for the last fucking 12 weeks I've been building up I've been basically tuning you guys into this fucking extremely high, uh, you know, high volume, like extremely fucking like scary fucking place, asking people to lift heavy weights and do a ton of dynamic work. And then they're like, well, I didn't realize that this stuff just built upon it. I just thought it was like random every day, like CrossFit, at which point I fucking throw up and I break my computer and I go outside and fucking kick rocks around. 
But like, but we've got a lot of broken computers but, around uh, the but ranch. But that's, <laughs> uh, but like, that's the thing that fucking drives me crazy. And the one thing that I always think about my mark is being like, stop fucking looking at everything day to day. Everybody thinks like they just randomly pull this shit out. I'm like, dude, I, I try to look at this shit weeks in advance. Like, hey, if I'm going to ask you to do something that I want to do, I got to at least prep you for you know, you know, six seven weeks. It's kind of like you know, Caldeet's talking about his triphasic. You know, you don't get to the heavy eccentrics until you've done the concentrics and you've done from the other stuff because dude he knows that the heavy eccentrics are by far the most damaging and if you just threw somebody into a heavy eccentrics program that had never even mastered a concentric or isometric hold they'd fucking shatter into a million pieces and like that's the shit like uh at some point the people listening to this and the people have to realize that there's a progression and i asked brian early on like if you looked at the life cycle of an athlete coming into play at mizzou what would it look like and he said within the first year it gets stronger get faster but at then yeah but at that point it changes and i think what uh what i've tried to make my mark in the last seven or eight years is that there's a progression to training that if you follow the progression you'll get where you want to go and the, unfortunately you know whether it's a uh, west side or you know fucking a uh, five three one or this all of those programs hit an athlete at a certain point in their training life and the problem is is that they're just used for everybody from beginner right. to advanced and yep. like you know and it's like uh, that's fine if you just want to go fucking lift some weights and you don't really give a shit but if you're trying to train for human performance what you did as a beginner isn't going to get you to where you are as an advanced athlete and if you as a beginner does an advanced athlete program he's never going to fucking progress and yep. like being able to like hand somebody and being like this is where you start. When you reach this point, you pivot to these and you kind of get them into a position where we're now we look at training over like this multi-year kind of lifestyle cycle template. And I remember sitting talking with Louie and Louie was telling me about this multi-year template. I'm like, but it's max effort dynamic every week. Yeah, well, we rotate bars. And I'm like, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, um, you know, the law of accommodation. I'm like, well, don't you kind of want a beginner to accommodate? Like, why would you rotate bars with a beginner when he hasn't even developed the movement pattern? And then, you know, Louis's like, well, I've trained beginners. And I was like, when was the last one? He's like, well, uh, Dave Hoff. I'm like, he squatted 800 pounds when he walked in the fucking door. Dave That's Hoff trained with Danny Day at Lexington for yeah, years yeah. before he went over to Westside from like 10, 15 or 15. So, so, so that, yeah, I, of course. And I'm like, Louis, he, the first day he showed up here, he squatted 800 pounds, dude. Like, that's not a beginner. Like, yeah. uh, it's, it's just, and this is what drives me crazy is where, uh, I'm not married to a method. It's not five, three, one. It's not this, it's not this. Like we're married to this idea of performance and by any, by, you know, by hook or crook or any means necessary, I just want to maximize your performance and it doesn't matter what it is. It isn't a set or rapid. It's literally the, the general philosophy. And it's really what I just enjoy about you and all your information is it's, uh, it's not steeped in dogma. It's steeped in like, let's just make people fucking better. Yeah. Thank so. you. Yeah, I guess that's my thing. If I needed to go back is that uh, I want people to understand that there's context for everything. You know, everything works. You just got to know when. And, you know, like Lou, talking about Lou, I love Louie. So this isn't a knock on him. And I love Anatoly Bondarchuk, and it's not a knock on him. But both of them, their views are so skewed because of the population they dealt with. Like Anatoly will tell you, you're overdeveloping strength. Strength doesn't matter. Strength doesn't matter. Well, guess who are the people that went to Anatoly? who were already strong. He didn't need to develop strength. He says uh, Yuri Sadiq was weak, and Yuri Sadiq had like 180 clean snatch, <laughs> 180 kilo snatch, rather. Uh, he, the guy's fucking strong. He was already strong enough. He, uh, Anatoly never had to develop strength with those guys. So, But then if you talk to him about other athletes, you know, and you, you get to specific questions on the younger guys, it's like, oh, no, he needs to get stronger. He needs to get stronger. <laughs> but you just told me strength doesn't matter. 
So, you know, it, it's they if they're looking at it from just their perspective rather than the specific case that you're at, it's like, well, you know, of course, Lou's going to say that this is what everybody needs to do. Well, this is a beginner. No, this is a beginner at Westside. Yeah, this is not a beginner. It's like, uh, Anatoly, let's let's look at these young guys. How come their throws go up whenever they went from a 150K to a 300K squat? Oh, because they got stronger. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, right. well I mean, when, when I went out to Louis, uh, you know, as we're talking about, you know, do this and this, and then I was like, well, what about if you were training football players? Well, I wouldn't have them do any of this shit. I'd have them do this. And then that's where I, you know, for our program where I developed like the five and the three rep maxes was based yeah. off of Louis. Like I would never have football players do singles. And I'm like, he's like, I would just have you do three and five RMs. It builds muscle in this. And I'm like, but you just told all these guys. He's like, yeah, I'm telling them, you know, like I'm telling you, I'm not telling them. And uh, and I was like, okay. And then we got this into- fucking prick. He told us to do one rep max. Yeah. And, and, and then uh, and, and then when we started talking about like the dynamic work, I you know I was like, hey man, like what about like uh, you know? And he knew about compensatory acceleration, but I you know like so. Uh, like, yeah, you need to lift a, uh, you know, there needs to be a lightning method. You have to be able to take bar, you know, bar speed off. And, you know, he was telling these guys, well, you know, you don't want to lift more than, you know, one or two reps on the dynamic stuff. And then I asked him, I'm like, is that for strength football players? He's like, no, nah, I would, uh, no. Like, it just, it, it was, uh, it, it was extremely eye-opening because what I realized is what happens at Westside uh, isn't, what you read in the book that you go there, you talk to Lou, you tell him what you're doing. And then he talks to you about something that has never been written. And then you go home and you realize like, Oh shit. Okay. Here's what it is. I got to lift some heavy weights and I got to lift some lighter weights faster. I got to get some bodybuilding, some rep in, I got to develop some fucking imbalances. And at the end of the day, I got to fucking push the envelope, uh, just hard enough, but not go so far that I fucking crash. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm really good at pushing so far. I'm crashing. You can look at this car. I mean, tricep <laughs> rupture, you know, freaking rotator cuff rupture, uh, hip replacement, hip scope. You know, I've got it all pec tears. But I'm I good mean, at uh, pushing until I break. But if you think about it, man, like uh, what was it? I don't want to die without scars. I'm like, man, like, you know, you got to have some scars, at least some battle wounds at some point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of scars, uh, I'd love to kind of get into what you're researching now. So with yeah. absorption, with standing tolerance, eccentrics. So what are you getting into now? You said you're on the brink of some pretty cool stuff. Can we yeah, I, I really think that I am. So what I've been doing is I've got uh, – I try and do everything. Well, for two reasons, I'm doing it cheap. Is one, because I don't have grants. You know, nobody funds sport. So if all of a sudden somebody wants to fund sport, come talk to me. I can get some bigger force plates to look at landing forces. But right now – I'm using PASCO single axis force plates. We've been doing counter movement jumps and mid thigh pulls and looking at, uh, and then we do some sprints and change of direction tests. Right. And one of the things that I've noticed is that, uh, and this was a flaw in my program, right. That I was pushing concentric, concentric, concentric. But if whenever I started looking at all these jumps uh, on the eccentric side of things, like the eccentric mean power, eccentric RFD, the braking forces and the like. The people who are poor at that, but they can jump out the gym, they're very powerful. These are the guys that get hurt, right? And I don't have specific numbers yet. I can tell you that from what I'm looking at right now, I don't think it varies by sport, but it does vary by gender. Like with the eccentric mean power. And now I'm starting to look at eccentric RFD too, because we just did something with the K box that made me, uh, my jaw dropped. I had no no idea uh, that. I mean, the eccentric RFD increases in four weeks for between fifty and three hundred percent. Now, is this the next thing? Is 
is this for everybody or is it just because these people happen to be weak at it to start? You know, it, it could very well be that type one error. And, you know, the way that I remember type one versus type two error is type one error is if a nurse looks at a guy with a beard and tells him he's pregnant. And a type two error is whenever the nurse looks at the pregnant lady who's giving you delivering right now and says, I'm sorry, you're not pregnant. So, you know, did we have type one error in there? in that we just had all of the really, really weak people uh, for that. And it wasn't much. It was, we're looking at four dudes. You know, this is a pilot study. Uh, but, you know, these eccentric measures, these, these are key for injury. And it, it makes sense whenever you think about it. It's like, oh, well, you know, these are the brakes. The concentric stuff is the gas. So, you know, this makes perfect sense. But now the fact that I can actually test it and we can start to look and, look at thresholds. And then, you know, my thing is I'm not going to tell the coach what to do. We're going to measure and see what they did and, and how did they respond? So, you know, we'll look at some accentuated eccentrics for some people, some, uh, the, the, uh, flywheel stuff for others and, you know, do all these different things and see how the athletes respond to training and apply context to it. And that's where I think that, uh, that that's going to be the only place where, uh, there's going to be a lot better, smarter researchers than me out there, but, I think that where I'm going to come into play is I was a strength coach for 18, 19 years. Uh, I'm going to be able to apply context a lot better than they can. Right. And, you know, patience key. Yeah. 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 Context is king. You know, uh, this, I can tell you this, that it worked. The person that had the 300% improvement was also the person who had the lowest to start. Right. And the person who had the 50% improvement, it might've been 40% they were the person that had the highest number to start with. But if we have people that start even higher, would they even respond to it? And then the next question is if we improve those metrics and that, and I will say this, that the, the ISO inertial flywheel, the K box, it only improved eccentric RFD. It didn't improve the other eccentric measures any more significantly than just the regular training. Uh, so everything is context specific. You know, you need more eccentric RFD, Based off of the the four guys that I looked at, fucking K boxing, you know, flywheel. If it's eccentric mean power, they need to increase. I'm gonna guess that uh, you know, based off of talking with Cal and then my intuition, that that accentuated eccentrics, mm-hmm. you know, his triphasic stuff would improve eccentric mean power. You know, I haven't looked at his data. I want to. I'm. Uh, I was thinking about it on the drive back yesterday. I need him just to send me all the shit so then I can look at it. And uh, well, you dropped the uh, remodeling of tissue as soon as you said the remodeling of tissue with heavy eccentrics, which is, you know, I mean, by far when we had Cal on the podcast and uh, when I talked to him at Summerstrong was the coolest shit I heard about. about oh, yeah. The idea of like, you know, the, the remodeling of tissue and uh, like just being able to take an athlete and be able to do that. I mean, if you think about like, uh, you know, we uh, I love how like this new thing is like, oh, you know, we're going to remodel tissue through. Uh, through fucking massage and all these different things, and you're being like, you know what it takes to what was it, uh, ten thousand pounds of pressure to remodel a one percent remodel of tissue? Like, yeah. yeah, it was something crazy. Like basically, yeah. you're not rolling on a fucking busu ball or a, a you know a foam roller to remodel your tissue. No. You know, and it's like, you know, you're relaxing your nervous system, which should technically, you yeah. know, make you more flexible. But in terms of remodeling tissue, the only way you're going to do it is under some fucking load. So to hear, you know, actually Cal have information where we know heavy eccentrics remodel tissue in a way that we've never seen is pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, so then everything's context specific, you know, and then if you look at, 
uh, you know, on the concentric end of things, you know, you've got force, you've got power, you've got rate of force development. And these all three things are developed through different means, Mm -hmm. you know, impulse force. Uh, You've got to do different things to develop different aspects of it. And uh, having the ability. So I'm doing the stuff here at Missouri. Uh, There's William Woods that I'm working with Coach Jones with his athletes going over and testing them periodically or more more apt uh, i've trained one of their people to be able to do the test and then i look at the data uh, looking at truman state lincoln university in uh, central methodist so that i could get big enough sample sizes and then having people do different programs and what happens different contexts what happens and uh yeah because everybody's going to want to do their own type of program so let's just look and see what happens as a result of training and sometimes nothing and then that that's telling you something too it's telling you all right this is what you expected to happen. We wish in one hand, we shit in the other, and we see what what came out of it. And uh, so it's it's great. It's uh, scary sometimes because what you knew anecdotally worked. Sometimes we find out that it didn't. Uh, you know, and uh, you know that that's what I'm on the brink of is uh, you know, and uh, I don't know if I actually went down this rabbit hole, but if we improve those eccentric stuff. Do we actually change their injury risk or is it just that the person came in and presented as this because this is the way they are? And if we change it through training, does that have an impact on injury? And that's something that I, I don't know. I think it might. I think it probably will. You know, it would make sense if it did. But do we actually know that? And the answer is uh, currently no. But go ahead. Isn't isn't part of, I guess, we call it force reduction, but in terms of dampening, isn't part of that getting in a, the most optimal position, right, to yep. to reduce force? Do, won't that prevent injury? You're almost ingraining uh, a better mover? Hopefully. Hopefully. But uh, it, it's just still, you know, what, what I'm trying to get better at is now that I'm this Ph.D. professor guy to to not just go out and tell everybody what I think will happen. I'm you know, okay. supposed to be telling them only what the data said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, I kind of think that's irresponsible too. you know, we've got to, we got to do both. It's like, well, this is what I did. This is what I think. I think that we will be seeing improvements. I think that by teaching the proper patterns that, you know, you'll be seeing improvements. You know, we know that from the times, the speeds, you know, the, uh, that that obviously changes. So we know that performance changes. It's does the injury risk change. And while I think it does, I don't know. No, but even it if it goes back to the but even ahead. if we push the needle in performance and there's no reduction in injury, it can't be it's not it's still valuable, right? Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's so. still valuable. And I just I don't know on those eccentric measures will that change the risk of injury. Right. Uh, and it could change performance. I want to give it a few more weeks and I want to look at accentuated eccentrics and and some other things because uh right now what I was seeing uh and, and quite frankly, we tested them on the worst possible day this last time. So the improvements in eccentric RFD might have been uh, even greater. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and here's the thing with with sport: if you're going to research sport, it's messy. Yeah. It's not ideal, and that's something that uh, I know some people have had some issues with my publications. Well, you didn't do this. You didn't have a true control group. Yeah, no shit, Einstein. We're not going to have a group that not trains as a you know to make sure that uh, we know what the actual effects are versus an untrained right. population. Yeah, that, that's that's fucking stupid. This you know this is college sport. Uh, you know, things are just messy and you do stuff whenever you can. And it's not necessarily ideal. It wasn't the ideal time to test them. Uh, but that's whenever we had the opportunity to do it. So 
and we still saw some massive increases. Hopefully on the next test, because that was just the mid, maybe we'll see some different things and we might even see a greater eccentric RFD and maybe it did cause a change on eccentric mean power and maybe we'll see that eccentric mean power is more sensitive to fatigue than eccentric RFD. I, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, it's just exciting to me. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't been this geeked out on something since, uh, since I really started looking at the velocity stuff and starting to see the relationship. Whenever we averaged out all the maxes and found that they were related to these percentage of 1RMs that happened to be related to the percentages that were on the strength continuums, you know, and that we could basically use velocity to dictate load. I haven't been this excited since I, I, I looked at that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then there's stuff with asymmetries that we can find with it because uh, those little plates, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the, the, the force plate setup that I'm using, 750 bucks, hmm. right? It's the price of a contact mat. Now, uh, you know, the downside, you know, the upside is because of it being that cheap, it's also really small. So I've got to use two. And the upside of that is then I can look at left and right differences and asymmetries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm getting getting that, too. And, I, and that's one of the other things. It's like, well, people talk about this theoretical 15 percent asymmetry being the cutoff for injury. Well, is it? And does it vary by sport? And uh, right now I'm looking at that. It varies by uh, I'm working with Chris Tex. If you go to uh, national, hopefully this poster gets accepted. Working with a, a med student who's analyzed some of our data that. Uh, it looks that uh, it is sport, but not gender specific mm. for asymmetry and uh, differences in that, which makes sense. It I mean, you're a soccer player. Yeah. yeah, I plan on one leg, I kick on the other. I might have a higher asymmetry than somebody does that uh, uh, swings a bat, you know, or shoots a basketball. You know, everything is, you know, context specific. And I, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, I, I'm just... I'm blabbing on and on and on about it because I'm so excited about it right now. And the fact is that there's something that's cheap that I can afford to do without a grant. Uh, you know, I'm partnered with uh, Forstex because uh, they they process the data uh, instantly instead of having to go through MATLAB. Like it used to take me, uh, I could collect 30 guy, 30 baseball players, two jumps apiece in nine minutes, right? But it took me, uh, between four and nine hours to process that data. Now it takes me 14 minutes to collect that data, so a little bit longer, but the data is instantly processed. So mm-hmm. as soon as I, as soon as they do their jumps, I can be like, you did uh, 50 watts per kg, you got 60, your was 45. And then so I can tell them something immediately, and uh, then the data I can also give to the coaches right then. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, I, I really like that aspect of things. And they're not the only company that does that. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. go ahead and, you know, just throw that out there. But, uh, you know, they it worked with the plates that I had. So, you know, this, it was for me, it was fantastic. And, well, I'll tell you what, man. I mean, the, the, if people aren't hearing it, you're out there. You are the fucking guy expanding the context to battle the bullshit. Right. Because people make these grandiose claims, probably well-intentioned. Maybe yeah. sometimes for profit, who knows? But either way, I think a lot of people believe what they're saying, but what they fail to see or hear or provide is that context you're talking about. And even that, you know, going to John's fail at the margin of your experience, I mean, you're out there looking at this data to build contextual models so that we can benefit from it and say, well, it depends. Give me some more information. Well, I'll tell you what Brian Mann told me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think yeah. that uh, that's powerful, man. And even more so, trying to kind of create this, we talked about it early on, get 
getting some of the brighter minds doing this stuff together more yeah. like a panel, you know, maybe it does break down that ego a little bit and people are more confident to, to reposition the focus on, am I doing what's best instead of is what I'm doing right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's right. Th there's another contextual framework is like, I'm not trying to necessarily t disprove what I'm doing. We're all working together to see if there's a better way to right. do something. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Just try and make what little tweaks, you know, what's the smallest change. And you know what I, I should even throw out there for that. The huge improvements, the eccentric RFD, we're talking about six sets a week, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. six sets a week cause right. that, you know, so it's just small little changes, small little tweaks and, and everything else is context specific. You know, it, if uh, you know what works in one group isn't going to work with another because they're different people, they need different things, and they're at different levels. Mm -hmm. You know what works great for a D three lacrosse is not necessarily going to work great for a, a D one basketball mm -hmm. or a, you know a D one uh, shot put. You know, know it, that's it's a fact. Brian, I thought of a Kelly. You'll appreciate this: a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote: "Speed doesn't kill, deceleration does." Even though that goes against everything. Yeah. But, well, uh, it's implied because in order to decelerate, context. you must have had sped up at one point. Yeah. It's commutative, Tex. Remember that in math? Yeah, because it matters. Everything Community matters. Pro commutative property of addition? And subtraction, maybe? No, definitely not subtraction. Anyways, we've spun out. But, uh, Brian, is there anything else you want to talk about, man? Tex, did you have anything else? Uh, hit all my bullet points, but I'd love to, uh, I guess, learn of any speaking opportunities that our, our, our listeners can can see you speak in person. You know, it would have been your guys' thing, unfortunately, having a kid that kind of slowed everything down for a while. Uh, in June, there's some, I wish I knew the name of it, and this is horrible of me to not. Uh, the, I think the first weekend of June, it's still going on. I haven't heard anything uh but it is the uh, some some clinic over in St. Louis. It's the first weekend at MIDCS or MICDS. I don't know, some big private high school over there. They have a, a big clinic, and I, myself and I think Jada Mayo is still going to go speak at it. Uh, July, I'm going to be at uh, National, uh, and then that's going to be it because I'm really kind of I'm, I'm pumping the brakes until the kid gets a little bit older. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I guess I should say, you know, if I can and plug this, that April 21st at Lindenwood University, I'm not going to be there because of just having had the baby, but I'm the state director for Missouri. So we've got a, uh, a clinic there that if somebody's listening and they want to go, they better book early because there's only 80 seats. Oh, uh, get on it, people. Yeah, right. So we've got David Szymanski talking about uh, tier training, and he's probably going to throw some baseball in there because David Szymanski is a, a tremendous baseball researcher. We've got Doug Berninger, who used to be with the NSCA, is coming in to talk about professional development. Uh, Rob Taylor from uh, uh, Smarter Team Training is coming in and talking about training the neck. Uh, Dr. Michael Yeses is going to be talking on whatever the hell he wants to talk about. Uh, you know, and his is going to be remote. You know, he's 83 uh travel he's got really bad asthma you know he i, I don't want him to end up in a hospital even though he was willing to come out here mm -hmm. uh you know he's going to be doing a, a remote presentation uh, uh and uh let's see who else is talking eric uh i forgive me for not being able to say last names i think it's french he's canadian uh with the st louis blues he's given a talk about you know looking at what sports science actually is and optimizing your, your training process as a result of it. Andrew Jagum, uh, who is a nutritional researcher, he's going to be giving a talk. Uh, and there's one more, and I just forgot it. 
Uh, it's somebody who's local. Oh, Mitch Schwartzman. He used to be an intern for me. He's the head strength coach for football at Lindenwood. Is going to be talking about like uh, integrating uh, you know, best practices for mental health. And uh, it, it's going to be a, a really nice clinic. And uh, I'm praying to God that somebody videotapes everything that I can uh, I can watch it. But uh, yeah, so my wife would kill me if I went for that right now. <laughs> where's, where's, where do you sign up? Where do we go? Where do we send? So if you go to NSCA.com uh, on the events, the state clinics, you can get to it through there. Uh, I'm working on trying to be able to do a Facebook event, but God knows I don't know how to do that shit. Yeah, so, yeah. uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. And it, once I, once I do, I'll have it up on Facebook as uh, as an event there, but yeah, it's April 21st starts at eight. It's done at three or four. Uh, Lindenwood is in St. Louis, Missouri, and this, the university is maybe 20 minutes from the airport. So, you know, if somebody's wanting to fly in, you know, it's, it, it'll be worth it. I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, Szymanski, Jagum, uh, and, uh, yes, I mean, we're all talking about internet, three international level presenters, you know, three international level presenters at a state clinic, you know, four PhDs at a state clinic, you know, this is going to be a, a, a fantastic, uh, clinic that I, I hate to miss. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, that that's going to be huge. Uh, I'm sure that I've got some other, Oh, I've got one speaking engagement, October 8th, the central States ACSM. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Uh, but, uh, I'm just going to drive over. It's a, a Thursday, Friday event. So I'm going to drive over on Thursday, drive back. And, uh, it's over in Kansas city, uh, locations to, uh, to be determined. Uh, but that, you know, if they Google central States ACSM 2018, that'll pop up. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure some other stuff will pop up or it might already be on my calendar and I just can't remember it right now. I'm horrible about that. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not a businessman. I'm not good at promoting stuff. But, uh, you know, so we'll have stuff come, that comes up in 2018, 2019. Uh, I'm sure I'll be at the coaches conference, even if I'm not speaking. Uh, and I'll be at the national conference for NSCA in July. Uh, I don't think I'm speaking there either. Uh, but uh, we'll be we'll be doing things and, and uh, pushing along. We'll have plenty of poster presentations from the stuff that I've been working on in the past year. Uh, the stuff that I've been helping some different coaches do. Uh with uh, interestingly enough, APRE, I'm pretty excited about that. You know, and the results that are coming up, and uh, do you know everything to push the field? That's right, dude. Brian, there you go, people. Train your brain. Get out there. Find Mr. Man on the streets. Challenge him. Challenge him. Build a context he's never heard of, and see if he can and blow your mind. Brian, we do have college coaches out there. I know we got uh, Montana Grizz, Matt Nicholson. So they are, and this is, I guess another opportunity to give the plug that you gave at the coaches clinic, they're doing the training. So what do you need from these coaches that are doing the training to help push the field? That's right, man. If they collect the data, if they pre-test, post-test, or even if they just test systematically, uh, there's stuff that we can do to find out if it works. And there's guys like me, Jerry Mayhew, Jay Dawes, Joey Eisenman, uh, uh, gosh, uh, Brian out at, uh, you know, UNLV. Oh my God. I can't remember his name, but there's plenty of it. David Zemanski. Uh, there's plenty of us that are out there that want to push things and want to help the coaches to find out, does this actually work? And if we don't have time, but we know somebody at your university, we can, uh, bridge the gap for you and, uh, you know, and, and do that sort of thing. Cause that's, we've got to do it. Mm-hmm. It's got to happen. And this has been another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing, 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 ing. ing. All right, bye. Ing. All right. <laughs> there <Yes>. we go. <laughs> bye. All right. 
Now it's time for you to empower your performance. What I love about Brian is that he spent most of his promo time talking about an event that he wasn't even going to because he thought it was that great. So maybe we should check that shit out. Go to nsca.com to find out more about the April 21st event that he was referring to. As Brian also mentioned, he's got a few speaking engagements planned, so be sure to follow him closely on Facebook and Instagram. His Instagram handle is at jbrian, Brian the Y, man, double N. Until then, stay up to date with his work, his many articles and studies, which are found on EliteFTS.com, where he is a regular contributor. Until next time, bye!